get away from the adults speaking like babies because they think it means more or it's more powerful. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to lower myself to some kind of, you know, e you know eloquent prayer. It's got to come from the heart. Well, as long as it comes from the heart in a way that represents our own depth of spirituality. It's not baby talk. In the Lord's Prayer, there's something that goes, holy is your name. So when we pray to God, we recognize the holiness of the name of God, which puts God in a whole new category, right? This above, this, this incredible, beyond idea. Now, I'm not trying to malign babies because babies don't recognize what holiness is, but you and I do, don't we? And we know the stories. And so let's get away from the baby talk. Baby talk, which is based on ignorance, is detrimental to prayer. Mark Twain said this, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure, right? And some people think that by their many words, I think this is in the Bible somewhere, by their many words, they'll be heard. Well, today, I want to touch base on something that I think is also detrimental to prayer, and that is performative prayers. What that is, is you don't really have a relationship with God, but you think that by your many words and how you say them, the eloquence, the words that you use, transubstantiation, that God will go like, oh, wow, he really, really means it. And so, therefore, your prayers will be heard. The people that give performative prayers, they either don't know God or they're trying to perform for other people. There is a temptation. When you stand before somebody to give a good prayer. My daughter Natalie used to pray before meals. Then my son Jonathan started making fun of her. I know this has never happened in your family where a brother would make fun of a sister. And our thing was she would pray, I'm sorry to pick on you Natalie, and it was a wonderful prayer, but frequently she would forget to bless the food, which is sort of the purpose of praying before a meal. But in my mind's eye, God's going to bless the food. He doesn't need us to ask him to bless it. God knows what he's doing. So I'm, I have no problem with not blessing the food. But that was just the unforgivable sin in our family. Well, that was many years ago. Today, when I asked Natalie to pray before a meal, she says, no. There's a lot of pressure now. And as a preacher, when I walk into, I'm visiting a place, I think to myself, they might call on me to pray because you know how, you know, got to call on the preacher. So I always got a prayer in my back pocket so I don't embarrass myself. Right? You know what I'm talking about, Bob, right? Performative prayers either are based on the fact that we don't know God and that our prayer with God should be communication, should be based in a relationship, and we don't really know God, so we just say good spiritual things, or we're trying to show off for other people. We're trying to do something for other people, and neither of those 
our prayers. Prayer is communication with God. So I want to look at an example of prayer, and I want to contrast the wrong kind of prayer and the right kind of prayer, and this comes from the Old Testament. And I know that you know this story well, but some of you might not, so we're going to go to 1 Kings. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 25 through 45. And we're going to take this example of the prayer of Elijah versus the prayer of the prophets of Baal, or Baal, and we're going to contrast them. Because I think sometimes that our prayers might resemble the prayers of Baal, as opposed to our prayers resembling Elijah. So sometimes when it comes to teaching something, the best way to teach something is to take a Bible story and let that to speak for itself. All right, so here we go. 1 Kings chapter 18, 25 through 45. As a general rule, you should never uh, read more than seven verses in public, but you can handle it. So we're doing 20. You ready? 25 to 45. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given to them, and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to the word of the Lord had come, um, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two says of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it in the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. Then the water ran down and around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are Lord, the God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell down and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water and the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Oh, Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. See, there had been a famine. There had been a drought in the land. So Ahab went and ate and drank, but Elijah climbed up the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the gr ground and put his face between his knees, go and look to the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked, there's nothing, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, 
the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the winds rose, the heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came to Elijah, and tucking in his cloak and into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Goes on to talk about the rain. I want you to contrast the prayers offered to Baal versus the prayers offered to God. Did you hear what they did for Baal? They cried out. And they cried out louder. And they danced. And they prophesied, which means they spoke the truth of their God. And even louder. And then ultimately, they began punishing their bodies by, by cutting themselves, by, by drawing blood so that they really meant it. They're really serious. But there was still no answer. But yet, what did Elijah do? He called out to God one time, and God answered from heaven with fire. And then the second time when it came to the rain, he called out to God how many times? Seven times. Did he dance? Did he cut himself? Did he call out louder? No. He bowed, called out seven times. And on the seventh time, God answered. What do our prayer services look like? Say it louder. Mean it this time. Don't they resemble that frequently? As if we're trying to get God's attention. Now, I've never been in a worship service where people cut themselves. I think I'd be heading to the door. But I've been in some where... You said things like, we need to fast. We need to punish our bodies. We need, to, we need to get God's attention. Look how long I have fasted, is the phrase. As if God's going to pay attention if we don't eat lunch or even three meals. Seems like when God went into the wilderness and he fasted for how many days? 40 days. When Satan came to him, Jesus didn't say, now listen, Satan. I've been fasting 40 days. I'm ready for you. We don't even get that, do we? What I'm trying to contrast here is that our prayer is not something that we convince, cajole God to pay attention to us. Our prayer should be something that acknowledges that God's paying attention to us. Now, I'm not against fasting. I'm against cutting yourself. I'm not against fasting at all. But your fasting is not a way of convincing God. Your fasting is a way of removing distractions so that you can really pay attention to God. So, if you feel like you're not doing it right, you don't mean it. You're not praying loud enough. If only you could dance. If only you could do something to get God's attention you're missing the point. Prayer is communication to God. And He wants, He wants to get your attention. You're not trying to get His attention. He wants to get your attention. That's a key difference. Now, fortunately, God has given us some tools to help us to pray. 
Now we're going to be in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21. I want to give you two tools that we know that Jesus has given us to pray. The first tool is faith. The first tool is faith. And what I mean by faith is faith with the absence of doubts. Here we go, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. This is right on the heels of Jesus cursing a fig tree, which really shocked the disciples. Now listen to verse 21. Jesus says, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what is done to the fig tree, but you could also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. What is faith without doubts? What is faith without doubt? I've got to admit to you that frequently I have taken this faith without doubt, meaning don't let any doubts come in your mind. If you let a doubt come into your mind, it's going to mess it all up. And so my prayers, I'm, I'm just embarrassed to say this, but my prayers resemble the little putting your fingers in your ears and la, 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 la. Because I don't want any doubts getting there because it's not going to work. That's not what it's saying. We're misunderstanding faith. People are, I, I really need God to answer. I need them to respond. So I got to have faith that doesn't doubt. Listen to this. There's not a supernatural commodity called faith. There is not a supernatural commodity called faith. As if once we get this thing called faith, whatever we want, we get. Because we all know this, God is the one who acts. It's not our faith that does it, right? It's God who does it. It's not the power of faith, but it's the power of God that makes things happen. So if you're praying, oh, Lord, give me that kind of faith that causes mountains to move, you're missing it. There is no such thing as that kind of faith. Otherwise, I would take the kind of faith that gives me all kinds of stuff. It's not the kind of faith. It's the kind of God. Did you hear that? There's no commodity. I think we misunderstand that. The second prayer tool is belief. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Some people treat this belief as the old wealth gospel message that is name it and claim it. All you got to do is believe that God is, wants to bless you. He wants to bless you richly. And all you have to do is believe that. So you name it and claim it and you'll get it. But if you have any doubts, if you don't really believe that you'll get it, then you're not going to get it because God knows what you really believe. There's a lot like faith and no doubt. And so what you do is you get these Christians who... Um, do this weird kind of thing with her head that they try to, I really do believe it. I really, really do believe it. 
In order to get it, they have to convince themselves that they really believe that they're going to get it. It's like a weird mental trick. And then when it doesn't happen, then they say to themselves, I must not have believed enough. Listen to this. Believing that a thing will happen or will not, believing that a thing will happen will not make it happen in the opposite. Because the emphasis is once again on something different than God. The emphasis is on our belief. It is God who acts, not our earnestness that acts. It's not how much we believe, it's how much God does. Prayer is communication with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you, you think, okay, well, I just need to say the right formula, or I need to do it right, or I need to la, 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 or I need to really, I really mean it this time, I really mean it this time. All of those insult God, don't they? Who sees and who loves and who hears. You don't have to get God's attention. You don't have to play weird mental tricks with your mind. You have to believe in God and believe that God can do more than we ask or imagine. So those are two tools that we're given. Faith in God and belief that God acts. He's alive and well. So now I want to lead to how it is that we can live as Christians in prayer. A guide, sort of. The first way that we need to live in prayer as Christians is we need to have the right kind of direction in our life. And I really hope that you would take this seriously and really analyze the kind of direction that your prayer is in. Here's what I mean. I heard this story from uh, World War I, 1918. The British, if you contrast the British in March of 1918, World War I, with June, you find something fascinating. In March, um, the British Army was in full retreat. And they weren't taking casualties or significant casualties, but they had a lot of soldiers in the first aid tents who were exhausted and they were, their uh, first aid tents were filled to capacity with these soldiers who were exhausted. They were paralyzed with exhaustion as they were in full retreat. But by June of 1918, the Britons were on the offense and they were taking land. What they have decided, what they've discovered is that for some reason, those first aid tents were not filled with capacity. Even though they were on attack and the soldiers were facing the same level of exhaustion, they could go and they could rest briefly and they would get rejuvenated. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference was a mindset. Those who were in full retreat were desperate, they were frustrated, they were projecting doom and gloom. 
and so they couldn't overcome that exhaustion. But when they were on the offense, same degree of exhaustion, but they had optimism, they had confidence, because they were going forward. What I'm trying to say is, in our prayers, the direction of our prayers is not doom and gloom and defeat. The direction of our prayers is that God is calling us forward. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether you are on your deathbed and God calls you forward, come home with me in paradise. Or whether you are here today in the world and things look to be grim all around us, but we know that our God is more powerful in this world than anything else in this world, that God is in control, that God is on this throne. And so our confidence is in God, not in ourselves. We're not ready to give up. If we didn't have God, perhaps we would be. But with God, nothing can stand. What is it? Come on. Against us. With God, nothing can stand against us. And so our disposition and prayer should be forward, not backward. There, there's an element of Christians, oh, especially in America, that are exhausted and they are ready to give up. And they're paralyzed with their exhaustion. I, I've done all I could do. I've done it all. That's it. It's over. I give up. That's a, that's a completely different approach in prayer than to the person that says, God, you're alive and active and you're not done yet. I want to go with you wherever you lead. So I think direction matters in our prayers. The second way that we should live in prayer is we need to not turn off our mind. We need to recognize what God is doing and recognize what God is not doing. Did you see there in Matthew, it said something like, well, verse 21, the end, it says, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. So if we have the right kind of belief in God, we can tell mountains to throw themselves in the sea. Let me just throw a little knowledge in here. I know you know this already, but mountains aren't alive. They don't throw themselves places. Right? Mountains don't pick themselves up and move over there. So what is this throw yourself in the sea? What it is is our little prayer uttered by us, little us, can do mountain-sized things. See, the analogy is not that mountains will wake up, pick up their skirt, and move, but instead that our prayer can make something so big, we're talking about a mountain, so big that that can move. Something little can affect something big. The reason I bring this up is sometimes when we pray, we ask for things that are not, we know are not realistic. The beauty queen says, I wish for 
world peace. And the little kid in Sunday school says, I pray for world peace. Not, that really sounds nice. And I'm not against world peace. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that there will be wars and rumors of wars. So if you're praying for world peace, I can tell you already based on our knowledge of the scriptures, that prayer is not going to happen. That's like telling a mountain to move. We already know it's not going to happen. Well, I'm praying that everybody goes to heaven. Listen, I want everybody to go to heaven. It's God's will that nobody would perish, right? But we also know that on Judgment Day, there's going to be those who go to hell and those that go to heaven. And we actually, statistically speaking, this is the little I know about math, broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter that way, right? So we're talking about percentages. It's not looking so good that everybody's going to heaven. So when we pray, we put our prayers alongside with the knowledge that we have of God. So we should pray in the right direction with optimism because God is alive and well, and we should pray realistically because we know who God is and how God works in the world. Now, I'm not trying to put God in a box. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong there. Um, nobody knew during Job's time, None, Job and his friends, they didn't know that Satan was doing all this evil stuff. They thought, some, they thought maybe God was punishing him. He was the unknown person. And I'm not quite sure that the Egyptians knew that God was somehow hardening Pharaoh's heart. They just thought that Pharaoh was an idiot or something. So there's things that happen that we don't know. And God can change hearts, and God can change minds. I'm not trying to put God in a box, but let's, when we pray, let's recognize who God is. God never forces his way on somebody. He always gives the freedom of choice. And when people choose wrongly, there are consequences. It seems like the Bible seems to indicate that we're going to have to turn the other cheek against our enemies, that we're going to have to carry the load an extra mile, that we're going to have to pay taxes, that, that we are going to have to suffer and be persecuted. All of those things are part of the plan. So if we are to pray, Lord, let there be no suffering, let there be no persecution, let there be no enemies, let there be no taxes, I would, I would suggest to you that that goes against what we know is going to happen in the Bible. And so I think we should pray with knowledge. So we have the tools of faith and belief, but we also need to pray leaning forward with optimism and pray realistically knowing what God does. Okay, let me close with a case study. And I'm sorry to get all nerdy on you, but sometimes this is how my mind works. A case study is where you, you look at a particular case and you... you um, you make conclusions, deductions from that case. So here we go. Turn in your Bible, if you would, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. That is verses 14 through 23. 
Again, I'm breaking the rule of thumb. I'm reading nine verses, 14 through 23. Here we go. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is a crazy story. This is, I'm almost near tears because this is a powerful story. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you can relate to the guy, can't you? Our kids drive us to pray. Have mercy, God. Whether your kid's little or grown up, it never goes away. He's desperate. My son has seizures. He's suffering. Falls into the fire and the water. Something's going on here. It's not mental illness. It's a demon. Jesus says this thing like, how long am I going to put up with you? Well, that's kind of harsh. Well, who's the one that could not cast out the demon? The disciples. They couldn't cast out the demon. Well, why not? They casted out demons in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sent them out. Every known sickness... All the demons, they could cast them out. Seven chapters later, they couldn't do it. Somehow, in the meantime, they had lost their confidence in God. They had lost their faith. And so Jesus reminds them, if you have just a little bit of faith, something as small as a seed, great things can happen. That's true today. God is on our side. If we can come to God and communicate with God as his dearly beloved children whom he sent Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, what more can he do to prove his love for us and have just a little faith, I mean just a seed of a faith, then God can do abundantly more than we ask or imagine. That's who God is. And let's just be completely honest. God wants our children to be healed. God wants our world to be healed. God wants what's best. God's will is good all the time. We don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to dance. We don't have to shout. We just have the confidence that God is good. And it is from that confidence that we pray forward. It is from that confidence that we acknowledge that God is already out there ahead and he is going to respond.
Now, when he doesn't, that might be another issue, and that's what we're going to talk about next week with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, when he begs that God that the cup would pass from him. But what I want to leave you with today is what we already know to be the case. God is on our side. Go back to the confidence that you had seven chapters ago or seven years ago, whatever it is for you, where you knew that God was in control. And if you're struggling and you see your kid throwing themselves in the fire, drowning out their future, you turn that over to God. Because I'm telling you this, God loves your child more than you ever will. Pray it forward. Pray it forward. And even if it's the very end, even if it's the very end, on that deathbed, when you know it's over, when you know that the prayer is heaven, you pray it forward. God, usher this loved one into heaven. Give my loved one closure and peace. Let them not suffer. Let them speak life into their family. Pray it forward. God hears. You don't have to get his attention. That's how great our God is. You don't have to get his intention. He is trying to get your attention. So let's all wake up, right? Let me pray.